Jesus, we thank you for your generosity. Thank you for not giving up on us. We thank you that we can call you Father and that you call us your children. Pray that may Christ alone be exalted in our discussion in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Indeed, we must work the works of Him who has sent us while it is day. For the night season of our life is definitely coming where we will not be able to work. We thank God for tonight and we continue our study on rightly dividing. And I think tonight is part five. <laughs> we have about three or four more parts, but <laughs> so we are looking at what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:15, that study to show yourself approved, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So immediately we can study the Bible with the agency of God's word, we are sure that we'll be able to rightly divide it. So the main issue is how do we study the Bible? And the first thing that you should know about studying the Bible is that it takes time to study. I believe everybody listening has been to school or is in school. And you know that it takes time to study. I don't think we read our notebook. I don't think anybody who reads his notebook 30 minutes or 45 minutes can be read enough to write an exam. No, it takes two hours maybe each day for about three months or four months before you sit for a paper. And that time is the same thing you should be willing to invest. And as long as you are willing to invest that time, then you can start applying the things you are learning. So all these things will only make sense for somebody who is willing to pay the price of study. Somebody who is willing to pay the price of study. And last week, we ended up looking at the fact that Words or different words mean different things to different people. Talking about the cultural implications of words. We, we first learned about appreciating the need for us to have a strong number in our study. Because there are some verses about it which is quite challenging to really understand what is being talked about. And when we look at Bible translations, we appreciate it a bit more. So anybody who is willing to study, it's like saying that you are studying, you definitely need things to study. So I don't think there's a subject in this world that <laughs> you will need past questions to study. You will need past questions, you will need textbooks, you will need conflict. So you will need all these things aside what the lecture or the teacher gives you in order to have a deeper understanding of the subject or whatever is being taught. So one of the textbooks or the past questions or the pamphlets that you will need in order to study them that will be a Greek and a Hebrew Bible. And as I said, nowadays we have everything online. So you can just download a soft copy Bible that has strong numbers and you are good to go. And then nowadays I will not be readers of scriptures. I want us to go back and go and read the scriptures for ourselves. Don't rely on what I'm saying. So I think last week we talked about Cain and Abel. And I remember when I was reading the passage, I emphasized the fact that the Bible said that it was Cain and his offering that was rejected. It's not just about the offering, but about the person giving the offering. And as I said, always let scripture interpret scripture. Always let scripture answer scripture. So how do we know that it was not just about the offering, but the person also offered 
First John chapter 3, verse 12 helps to answer that. So as I said, a question we are seeing in Genesis, the answer is in First John. So that's like Old Testament, the New Testament, the first book, and about the last but one or last but two books in the New Testament. So you can see the distance. So that will help us to answer what the issue about Cain was. First John 3, verse 12. Now about the offering to what was wrong with offering. It is true that in that verse, we are giving a hint. The Bible didn't describe the quality of Cain's offering. All the Bible said was that Cain brought an offering. But with Abel, the Bible went on to say that he brought the firstlings and the meats or the best portions of his offering. So that alone will give you the hint. Now there is as to why did Cain do that and why did Abel do The answer is in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. So there are two reasons why God did not accept the offering. One was the person offering it first John 312, and one was the quality of the offering, Hebrews 11 verse 4. He himself might have known what was right. So the question about Gehazi. Now you know that Elijah handed over to Elisha and Gehazi was understanding. Now we've been puzzled as to why there's a story in the Bible where I think a rich woman's son fell sick or died or so. Then the prophet sent Gehazi. He gave Gehazi the staff and told Gehazi to go and I think lay it on a child or something. And the child would come back to life. Gehazi went and challenged the thing no source. Or the thing didn't happen. The child was not healed or was not brought back to life. And came back. And I think the prophet asked him that, are you sure you do what I told you? God said, yes, I did. Then the prophet himself had to go and raise the child up or heal the child from the sea. Now the question is, why did Gehazi not get it right? And it's interesting that the next chapter after that, we are giving the answer. The next chapter after that was when the commander of the Syrian army, in the name of, of Nema, came to see the prophet to help deliver the leprosy. You know what happened. So that story gives us the attitude or the disposition of Gehazi's heart in his service to the things of God. That is why even though he had the mantle of the prophet, because he didn't have the heart of the prophet, he was not able to do all these things. So all these things will help you have a sweeter and a richer Bible study. But as I said, all these things will only happen if you are willing to pay the price of sitting down and studying. So Paul again said, steady to show yourself. Steady. All these things will only make sense when you are willing to study. So that's just like answer to a question I think I've been saying often on the podcast. So now we continue that study. And we end up by saying that certain words have cultural meaning. And I gave us something to get check out that when a Jew sees a shepherd, what comes into mind? It's very different from when a Ghanaian or an European or an African sees a shepherd. So for us to appreciate the richness of the Bible, we need to appreciate the fact that the Bible was written within a culture and a cultural setting, which will obviously influence how we rightly divide the word of truth. We need to appreciate the cultural influences or the cultural elements in the Bible. This is a way that is very important. So when David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, the understanding by which David is saying it is obviously going to be different from when somebody in Nigeria, a Nigerian or a Ghanaian or a Togolese is saying, the Lord is my shepherd. So for us to appreciate the riches of that statement, you will now need to pay the extra price of going out to study or to look out for what it means when a Jew says shepherd. So right now we realize that 
it will take a lot of time because you have to look at context, you have to read, you have to look at the Greek and the Hebrew, you have to look at the culture setting. So you realize that Bible study is a five-minute sample. It's not a ten-minute sample. It's something that can take you minutes, that can take you hours. Imagine, as I said, I'm science fan, so imagine you are studying a circulatory system. You need to watch videos, you need models, you need all those things to help enrich your study. And if you are really serious and being able to rightly divide the world of things, you need all these things. So tonight, we want to just look at the cultural elements in the Bible, or we want to look at the cultural influences in the Bible. Well, as I said, the Bible was written within a culture and a cultural setting. And the first of the mistake many of us make in interpreting the Bible is that we interpret the Bible based on culture. So this one is one of my golden rules in Bible study. Never interpret scripture based on your culture. I repeat again, never interpret scripture based on your culture. Because unfortunately for you and I, we do not write the Bible. I don't think wherever in this world you are listening to, I don't think you are a Jew <laughs> or you are a Hebrew. But I don't think you, it was of your great-grandfather or your ancestor who wrote the Bible. And just understanding this statement will solve a lot of arguments in the Bible. A lot of controversies people have in the Bible. For example, the issue about clothes. When the Bible says, when God was telling the Israelites, a man shall not wear a woman's clothes. A woman will wear a man's clothes. First thing, looking at this sentence, I don't know how we came up with the idea that this scripture is saying that women should not wear trousers. I really don't understand. Because as at the time God was telling Moses to write this passage, the idea of trousers didn't even come up for. If God is against the wearing of trousers by women. So you see, the issue that because we are interpreting this scripture, Based on our culture, we would think that what God was telling Moses was that women should not wear trousers. And we all know, or not we, okay, most of us know that there are some countries in, in the world that men wear skin. So what would you say about that one? So you see that the mistake, the fundamental error people make when they're interpreting this part of scripture particularly, is that they look at their cultural setting to interpret what the Bible says. But when of child has nothing to do with what God was talking about, absolutely nothing. And if you just do a little Google, right now, thank God for Google, you can just Google it out. You would realize that the design or, or the world of trousers came about somewhere in the 14th or the 15th century. I think it was between, I think it was in the 15th century, so between the 14th and the 16th century. That's when the issue about trousers came about. So this was years before or years after God had given that instruction. So that instruction has nothing to do about trousers. But you'll be amazed the sort of argument and investment that has gone into this argument. And I think last week I started with this explanation. And one thing that we should understand when we want to dissect, especially the Old Testament and the law God gave to the Israelites through Moses, is that you must appreciate the fact that God was trying to wean the people out of Egypt. And I gave the example of slavery or colonialism, that even though Africans are, all African countries are independent, Internally, we are not independent. We are fully reliant on the white man's taste. We have a strong taste for everything European. So even though God had delivered them out of Egypt, Egypt was still inside of them. So God had to deliver Egypt from them. So God was just teaching them, or God was willing the people to lose their taste for Egypt. So you remember a time came in the wilderness 
that they were tired of eating manna and they were complaining that they have been eating manna every day. Please, we don't want this manna, we want meat. And he made a fantastic statement. He said that we remember those days in Egypt when we used to eat kakimba, we used to eat lettuce, we used to eat all those things. So you realize that these people still have held on to Egypt or the lifestyle of Egypt. And one of the things that God was trying to tackle was to disassociate themselves from the culture of Egypt. And one of the things about the Egyptian culture was that one, women were engaged in battle. Women used to go for war. And that's one of the things that God did not want the Israelites to do. So if you read um, when God was instructing Moses about those who qualify for war, it was like, you must be a young man, I think from the age of 20 or 25, and that a woman or a child should be allowed to go for war. Now, why was God giving them all these things? Why was God calling some animals holy or holy? It was simply because of the fact that God wanted to kill their taste buds for Egypt. That was all. And one thing about Egypt was the fact that when men used to wear clothes that belonged to women, if you use the Greek, as I said, I use the Greek and Hebrew, that verse, I think, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, if I'm correct, the word is, a woman shall not wear a dress pertaining to a man, and a man shall not wear a dress pertaining to a woman. And what that scripture was talking to them directly was to talk about the fact that one asada pertained to men was the armor, the battle regalia they used to wear. And God was simply telling them that. So when God was saying that a man shall not wear a dress pertaining to a man, what God was simply telling them was that a woman should not go for war. That's all that God was telling them. On the face value, there's a lot more. And when we are dealing about the Old Testament, talking about shadows and realities and allegories, you would appreciate this a bit more. But on the surface value, God was simply telling them that women should not go for war. That's basically all that God was telling them. Women should not be engaged in war. So God was changing their taste for Egypt. That was all. And that's the reason why God also gave them manna. So when the Bible was talking about it in Deuteronomy, it said, I fed them with a food they had no idea about. All these things God was doing was simply to loosen their taste for Egypt. That's all. It's as simple as that. But then let's just tackle a very sensitive cultural issue in the Bible. And that can be found in 1 Timothy 2, verse 10. So we would like to read that one. Now, Papa, Paul is speaking to Brother Timothy <laughs> again. And Paul is teaching, and he's saying that, okay, from the verse 11, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Hmm. Verse 13, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. Verse 14, Adam was not deceived, the woman being deceived, was in transgression. So now, this issue about should women teach in church, women be pastors, women be called, this issue can be addressed severally, but I just want to tackle the scripture at hand. And this is one scripture that if you don't understand the cultural setting, you would really, really, how do I say, you really, really go off board, or you won't really get what Paul was trying to communicate. So this is a classical example where Paul was addressing a cultural issue. So now, let's just put some of the things we have learned into place. One of them was that the reading of the Bible. So yeah, you can see that Paul is trying to distinguish between a woman and a man. 
but we all know clearly that from several scriptures, the most common one can be Galatians 3, verse 27, that in Christ Jesus, there is neither a male nor a female. There is neither a Jew nor a Greek. There is neither a slave nor a free man, but all is one. And as a favorite um, verse or a stanza in a Methodist hymn, that says that names and sects and parties form, thou, O Christ, are all in all. So now, if you look at this scripture and you look at the body of scripture, you would realize that it seems to contradict itself because we see so many instances of God using people. Or in fact, we listen that the first apostle was a woman. The first person Jesus sent after he resurrected was a woman. But I said, I don't want to answer it. I want to tackle the scripture here though. So now, the first thing you notice from the verse 11, paying attention to details, is that the Bible says, now let the woman, this is the first thing you should notice, let the woman, not let a woman. This is very, very important. So Paul was talking about the woman. Paul was talking about a woman. That's the first thing. He said that, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but as often not a woman to teach. There's even another scripture, I think in Corinthians, that says that the woman should keep quiet in church and that if the service is going on and she doesn't understand anything, when she goes home, she should ask her husband so that the husband will teach her. And people have used this scripture. I think it's in 1 Corinthians um, 11. And also, the one we just read, 1 Timothy 2, um, from verse from verse 9 following, that based on these two scriptures, people are saying that women should not teach in church. Now, the first thing I ask is that, are all women in the world married? Obviously not. So if the only way a woman can speak in church is by asking her husband, what about those without husbands? How would they live? So obviously, you would realize that Paul was not talking about what we think he was talking about. That's why he said the woman, talking about the married woman. Let the married woman, a woman who has a husband, let that woman learn in subjection. When he goes home, ask your husband to clarify. So now, what am I saying? Am I also saying that, or is Paul also saying that, so when you are not married, when you are single, then you can be talking in church, but immediately you marry, then <laughs> you stop talking in church. Absolutely not. So now, there were two things that Paul was addressing. And this is a cultural element, a cultural thing that we need to appreciate. And this is the only way we'll be able to rightly divide the world of things. Now, the first thing about Timothy, or the Timothy one was that during that time, Paul was a pastor of, of the church in Ephesus. And if you have read the book of Acts, I think from Acts chapter 16, if I'm correct, or Acts chapter 20, well, when Paul went to Athens to preach, you would realize that the church of Ephesus was a spiritually tensious region, if I should say. It, it would be like Africa in, in, in today's setting, in the sense that there's a lot of strong belief of spiritual activity going on. So Ephesus was a region where there was a lot of idol worship going on in that region. And one of the most prominent one of them is the worship of the goddess Diana. Now, if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul had an issue with those people. You know, a time came that Paul preached and most of those who were um, worshipping the goddess Diana, they left and the smith in the town um, the goldsmith and the rest, they gathered actually the way Paul is preaching. If you don't stop him, you run out of business. And they incited the people against Paul. So, this one as I said, now this we are encouraging the video of the Bible. So, start from, the, start from Acts chapter 1. But I think you get to the last verse, Acts, you see the story I'm talking about. So, that issue was there. 
and the goddess Diana, um, also called the goddess Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S. She was one of the gurus in that region, and she's the goddess of fertility. And her picture, you can Google it, her picture is a multi-breasted woman. And that religion was simply the religion of superiority of women. And it is being, or the people that followed that goddess were people or were women that had the doctrine or had the ideology that a woman can do without a man, particularly in procreation. That's why Diana was called the goddess of fertility. So most of those times, when women wanted children, it is she they go and consult or they go and see whichever word we want to ask her. And there was a cult, there was a group of people that had this belief. So they were worshipping the goddess Diana. And one of the things that I said was that you can procreate without a woman. So when Paul went to do his evangelical work there and won mainly to Christ, he brought them or he gathered them together and made Timothy the pastor of the church. Now, just as the name of the podcast will renew your mind, Paul knew that the minds of these people were not yet renewed. So Paul was addressing the cultural issue. And the cultural issue was this, that these people have just left the worship of Diana or the goddess Diana, but their minds are still with, or the way of living, their mind is still programmed to live the way they used to live when they were worshiping the goddess Diana. So Paul was telling Timothy that, do not allow a woman because when they come, because of their unrevealed mind, still project their way of life under Diana in the church. That's why he used the word that do not allow a woman to usurp. Usurp simply means to be autocratic. You get it? And it was a key feature of the cult of people that worship Diana. But as I said, they believe that women are superior or they don't need a man. So it was a cult that projected womanhood in the sense that of completeness, even the man to do anything. And obviously one of the most limiting factors, if I should say, is in procreation. Because one person cannot procreate. So Paul was trying to address this issue that these people, because of the way they are all living, just as the Egyptians, the Israelites, even though they had left Egypt, their minds were still in Egypt. So even though they were not in slavery, they were still trying to live as though they were in slavery. So Paul was trying to manage this situation. So Paul was simply telling Pastor Timothy that do not allow these women to preach because of their minds are unrenewed. Because when they come and preach, they will still find a way. You remember one of the rules of Bible reading? We read for understanding, not from our understanding. Because these women had the understanding of the way of Diana, they would teach things that still project the ideologies of Diana. And that's simply all was raised by women, his grandmother and his mother. They taught him the way. So obviously, you know that that's not what Paul was trying to teach. Now, what about the Corinthians people? And for the Corinthians people, Paul told them that, or they were the people that Paul told that they should go and learn from their husband. They should not make noise in church. They should keep quiet. So what was the issue? That is also another cultural element happening over there. If you realize, the people of Corinth, it's... it's um. It was a provincialized because of trade. It was a business hub. So all those who were dealing, they, they kept going. And the thing about them was that in that region, it was the women that were the business people of those days. The women were the top people of those days. And they were dealers in mostly two things, textiles and jewelry. 
So in that region, the women were the top most people of that time. And even during that time, there was when Julius Caesar was there, and they brought about what we call the classism, where they believed that only a group of people that were born in a particular family or had a particular social standing were regarded above a certain group of people. And as I said, the prominent people or the business people at that time were the women. And because of that, these women found it very difficult to submit to anybody or to listen to authority, both for men and for women. They felt like they were on top of issues. And Paul similarly, wanting to address this thing, even gave a teaching that the head of man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. So the underlying word is death. Paul is not saying that the head of women is men. That's another misconception or one, one thing that you have, most people have taken inaccurately. Paul didn't say that the head of a woman is a man. So those men that say that men are the head, you are only head in the context of marriage. And you are only the head to your wife. Paul was saying that the man and the woman. So Paul that because those days the women were more of the breadwinners of the family, they were like their final authorities at their home. And they knew that if these women were made leaders in church, they would transmit those same things. Then there would be chaos at church. So in order to bring a certain form of orderliness, Paul gave the instruction that when they come, everybody should keep quiet. When you have an issue, ask your husband. Because immediately you allow them to speak, to become a, a more of a, a debate or the whole meeting will be full of quarrels. This woman is saying this, this woman is saying that. So Paul, in attempting to bring order and decency in the place of worship, gave those instructions. That is why you see it in Corinth or in First Corinthians and in Timothy. That, these are two examples when Paul was dealing with cultural element or cultural a cultural setting. It was not a universal principle. And you see, things like this, you only get to know them when you pay the price of study. So again, I say study to show yourself approved a man that needed not to be ashamed, rightly fighting the word of truth. So now, from all these things, you can see that you will need to pay the price of getting other materials. But now, thank God for the internet. You can always Google things like this. So, if you want to know, for example, the issue about marriage in the Jewish culture, they describe marriage of in the way Jews celebrate marriage. So, mostly this is the parable. The bridegroom delayed and the virgins were waiting and all those things. It doesn't mean that Remember last week I said that the fact that the Bible is describing something doesn't mean that the Bible is what prescribing something. So the Bible is simply describing how the Jews used to have their marriages. The Bible is not saying that is the way we should have marriages. So all these things should be in your mind when you are studying the Bible. You should be able to see out the cultural elements in the Bible for you to have a richer steady life and to appreciate what is going on and not misappropriate truth. So these two stories are classical examples, or these two passages we read are classical examples of cultural elements. I'll leave another one to you. I think in the same first Corinthians, I think 11, yeah, first Corinthians 11, that chapter Paul was addressing two things. The latter part was addressing the issue about communion, how people were taking 
were abusing the communion. But in the preceding verse, he was talking about the fact that where women are praying, whether they should cover their head, they should not cover their head, they should talk about angels and all those things. So if you apply all the things you have learned so far, right from reading, paying attention to details, reading for understanding, Greek and Hebrew, a cultural setting, and letting what you have things in first Corinthians 11. Now, the next part is very important. In understanding or rightly dividing the world of truth is the issue about Bible translations. The issue about Bible translations. And this is one big one. The issue about Bible translations, which are accurate, so on and so forth. So let's start with that one. I don't think we will deal with everything, but we will get ahead with it. Now, what we need to appreciate, so there are two things. And the cultural elements to the issue of Bible translation. Now, the Bible itself, when I'm talking about the Bible, I'm talking about the original manuscript. I'm talking about what Paul wrote, what Moses wrote, what David, what they wrote. There are no mistakes or errors in the Bible. And in the Bible, I'm talking about the original manuscript. When Moses was writing, he made no mistake. When David was writing, he made no mistake. When Peter was writing, he made no mistake. But how come we can find some? Now, these supposed mistakes or errors came about due to translation. We call them translational weaknesses, Bible translational weaknesses. Now, why do we have translational weaknesses? Because of three things. The first one is language limitation. And I explained it last that when a Greek man or the Greeks have about five or six or seven words to describe love, when the English man has only one word, so for the Greek, they have agape, they have philos, they have eros, they have zenith, they have all these words to describe the same love. But for the English language, you have just one word, love. The limitations in language. And you can imagine, for, for, for those in Africa, particularly in Ghana, I can speak for, for Ghana, there are so many words that are used in Latin English that are not in the local language in Ghana. And I always give the example of angles, 30 degrees angle, 40 degrees angle. I don't think there's any local language in Ghana that has the word angles. So because of things like language limitation, that is why we have different Bible translations. Because one word that's, or one word in the English has about three words in Greek and Hebrew. And I'm using English because we are speaking English. You can imagine, let's say French or Portuguese or Spanish, this principle still applies. So because of the limitations in language, that is why we have different Bible classes, and that's why they seem to be an error. Now, the second reason is because of language diversity, because of how diverse language is, especially in grammar. For example, I did a bit of French, but my French is as poor as anything. One thing that I don't like about the French language is about male and female. Like, uh, masculine and feminine that's one thing that really was everything you have to know whether it's masculine or feminine one thing is that so if you say a table is a table masculine or feminine if you say a chalk is chalk masculine that issue about it just pisses me off <laughs> but you appreciate the fact that with the english language i don't think there are articles for objects and you must know if the object is a feminine object or masculine object so you see the issue about diversity Another thing about diversity is about expression. For example, because, listen, for example, there are some words or there are some expressions 
that are particular to the Ghanaian culture, that are not particular to any other culture. So a Ghanaian will give a particular expression and only a Ghanaian will know what he says. But somebody who is not a Ghanaian will try and do a direct translation of what is being said and you miss the meaning of what is being communicated. The meaning of what is being communicated. And every language has it. So for example, the English, they have idiomatic expressions. The, the one that I remember very often is the chip of the old block. Now, imagine somebody from Nigeria or somebody from Togo, somebody from Ghana, trying to learn. If he doesn't know that next thing, he will do a direct translation. Then you say the meaning of what is different. And what does it mean? When people were translating the Bible, not all of them were scholars or were natives of the Greek and the Hebrew language. Most of them studied the language as a second language. So most of them were not natives of the language. And obviously, it would affect how they translate the Bible. So if I'm a Ghanaian and a Ghanaian says a particular expression, because I'm a Ghanaian and I know what he's trying to communicate, I will not use the same words or the direct translation in the English language. I rather communicate the idea, not the words. And because of the diversity of languages, that is why we have translation. And the last one, which you can already guess, is because of cultural dynamism, because of how diverse cultures are. So the issue of language limitation, language diversity, and cultural dynamism help us to appreciate the fact that we need more than one Bible translation in doing a study of the Bible. Let's take something about the cultural dynamism, for example. You know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Now, when the Hebrews are speaking, they are mostly descriptive in their speech, but the Greeks are mostly definitive. So it's like when a Ghanaian wants to communicate something, he deal more with um, using emotions and want to describe what happens. That's how come, for example, to a Ghanaian or I think to an African, I can't tell if but to a Ghanaian, we see time as an event. So to a Ghanaian, when you tell the person that the program is starting at eight, in the person's mind, it is when you say eight, you mean between eight to nine. So as long as the person comes between eight to nine, and some will even say between eight to ten, a person is on time. But to other places, when you say eight o'clock, they see time as a spot, not as an event. So when they say eight, it means that when it's eight on the clock, you should appear on the scene. Eight one means you are late. Eight five means you are late. So this issue or these differences in culture would also influence how we communicate. So you will realize all these things come into play. And many of these Bible translations were done by scholars, were done by language experts, were done by educated people, not necessarily spirit-filled people. For example, I think the King James Bible, it was King James who gathered a group of people and gave them a tax that he wanted the, um, the Bible to be translated in English. So he gathered about, I think, I forgot, I think about 70 people. I'm not sure about the number. But he gathered some scholars together to translate the Bible. Obviously, people are not spiritually. These people are just experts in languages, are just educated and scholars. So how they would translate the Bible would be different from maybe a group of who are spiritual and also educators. For example, the issue, let's look at the King James. I know most of us trust the King James Bible. 
For example, if you realize the King James used the pronoun it for describing the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit itself bears witness. So they use the word it for the Holy Spirit. But if these people who are translating the Bible knew what they were writing, they would no way use it for the Bible translation for the Holy Spirit. Now, another example, which I found very, very fascinating, is in Proverbs 31, the description of a virtuous woman. Now, in most versions, they use the virtuous woman. But thank God we have the strong numbers. That gives us the Greek and the Hebrew. So now, if you have downloaded the Bible app with the strong numbers, go to Proverbs 31, the verse number 10, and you see that who can find a virtuous woman. And the number 242, it stands for Hebrew. So if you touch the number, the Hebrew word there is kahu or kill. It is C-H-U-Y-I. And if you look, the main meaning of the kahil or kahil is strength. So the inner trait being of them was strength. When the Bible or when the writer of Proverbs that I was talking about the virtuous woman, the writer is simply telling us that the main characteristics of a woman should be her strength. Then it goes out to list the various components of the strength that he's talking about. So one of them is that a virtuous woman is spiritually strong. So you see that um, on one of the lads, um, she fears the Lord. Let me look for that. Favor is deceptive. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be great. So, exhibit one, she's spiritually strong. She fears the Lord. Two, she's emotionally strong, able to control herself. She doesn't react. Financially strong. So, you said that she wakes up early in the morning. She does business in the deep. So, you see that all these things the Bible is listing about this virtuous woman is talking about her strength. So, look at the verse. I think we should just read it. Proverbs 31. So verse 10, who can find a virtuous woman? Verse 11, the heart of a husband that safely trusts in her. She has no need for spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. So this one strength that she can exhibit, she's not a woman that gives trouble to her husband. She's a woman of peace. She has a way of controlling herself because by nature, the feminine um, characteristics is quarrelsome. That's one thing about women. We like to argue. There's no one come and attack me on it. But then, a virtuous man is someone who exhibits strength in self-control. Verse 30, she seeks wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like a merchant. She bringeth forth goods from afar. So he said, this virtuous man talk about is a woman who is financially strong. It's a woman who is strong in the area of business. She's able to feed her household. So what happened was that if you were steady, you would realize the import of the message. And most of them being men with their ego, they didn't want to use the word a strong woman because you know about this issue about men wanting to usurp authority over women and men having the issue of women being inferior. You know, there are these things in many cultures. Even in the Jewish culture, they see women in quote as second-class citizens. So those who are writing particularly the King James Version, they were also who suffered from this same unrenewed mind. And because of this, when they were translating it, they did they couldn't bring themselves to write a strong woman because it felt like they would be in quote empowering the women to outdo the men, however they want to put it. But if you look at it, there was a, it is this virtuous woman that makes sure that their household is always full. This woman prays to her husband 
same as it of what some other versions say. So maybe you take the King James version, and the King James version will say maybe the boy is going, but you take the NIV, and the NIV will say the girl is coming. We will look into all these issues. So now we say the Bible is sweet, and now you appreciate why Paul tells us to study, because it's only when you study that you get access to all these things, and you have a richer and a sweeter Bible study. We want to spend some time in prayer and obviously we want to pray for grace that God help us to pay the price because this thing is meant to be studied. This book they have given unto us is meant to be studied. And until we start studying, we will not get access to the riches of the things we have in store for us. If we don't study the Bible, but the issue that we keep coming up with excuses, one, and two, we are not hungry enough for your word. We are not hungry enough to have a richer walk with you. We are not hungry enough. We don't have a genuine consent for these things. We think because I'm not going to be an ordained minister, I Things, forgetting that these words you are giving unto us are the arsenals that we need to live every day of our lives on earth. Father, we pray, I pray for every lesson. Father, grant us the grace to study, grant us the grace to invest the time, the energy, the resource in getting the Greek and the Hebrew versions, in getting more than one Bible version. Every student of the Bible needs to be committed to at least two Bible versions. Help us to appreciate the need for these things. Help us to know that these words are penned down for us. This ancient words are ever true. These ancient words are going to guide us even in our journey of this life. Help us to pay the price. Deepen our hunger, deepen our interest, deepen our yearning for your way. Because they are life unto those who find it. And they are medicine to our flesh. It's only when we study that we find their life in the pages of this book. Father, we thank you that unto us it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. In the name of our Lord Jesus, Amen. Wow, I think today we are doing a deeper study and next week we will continue to look more about this issue of Bible transmission and how do we go around it? How do we solve it? When we see errors or contradictions in Bible transmissions, Remember to give God your best. And this week in particular, as you go to work, as you go to school, give God your best and owe no man nothing but love. Bye-bye and see you next week. Bye.